Welcome to the Wills and Estate Transmission Podcast, brought to you by DeGroots, specialist lawyers in wills and estates. Welcome back to the podcast channel for DeGroots.com.au, and we welcome back Max Williams from DeGroots. Welcome back, Max. Thanks, Tony. Great to be here. So we touched on an aspect in the last episode about capacity, and um, there's a show back on TV, Mother and Son, which deals with certain aspects of capacity quite in a good, funny, engaging way. So let's look at that and see what qualifies as capacity. And even some illnesses that we think affects people's capacity and actually doesn't. Mm. Well, I think one of the, and it's played for laughs, I think, in both the new version and the old version that we all love, is that with the character of Maggie, who I'm not sure if we ever are told whether she definitively has any diagnosed cognitive issue like dementia, but as the audience, you're always wondering, does she or doesn't she? Because sometimes um, it seems like there must be something uh, impairing her memory or her decision-making, and then other times she has these sort of a glint in her eye and you think she knows exactly what she's doing and maybe she's just putting it on and you're never quite sure which it is. And um, in terms of our practice as estate planning lawyers, that often can sometimes reflect our experience when we've got someone before us where maybe there is a diagnosis of dementia or some other cognitive impairment. But as the practitioner, you're not sure exactly whether that means that that person can make a will or understands the effect of a will or not. It's it's sometimes not as clear-cut as you would think. The first point to note is that ultimately when it comes to the question of someone's capacity to make a will, it's ultimately determined by the court. It's not determined by me as the lawyer. It's not even determined by the doctor, which some people are surprised by. It's determined by the court. And the reason for that is that capacity as it concerns making a will, is not ultimately a medical test. It is a legal test, and therefore it falls under the jurisdiction of a court to make a determination. Now, when it comes to making wills, there's a very, very old case, um, an, an old English case, which sets out the elements of testamentary capacity, and that is that they need to understand what a will is, they need to understand what their assets consist of, they need to understand who are the people in their life that have a claim on their bounty, so their next of kin, and they they can't be suffering from any uh, insane delusions is the terminology that's used in that old case. It's called Banks and Goodfellow. Now, as a lawyer, if I've got someone before me who maybe has dementia or some other cognitive impairment, I need to either explicitly or implicitly go through those elements with them and satisfy myself that they're able to address those and make copious notes about their answers. If I don't think the person has capacity, as a lawyer, as long as the instructions they're giving me are competent and I can understand them, even if I might not agree with them, I actually am duty-bound to make a will for that person because, again, it's not up to me whether that person has capacity. I might not think they have capacity, 
but I might be wrong. And it would be very wrong of me to deprive someone of making a will just because I might have certain biases or, or uh, you know, might get the assessment wrong. And that's another aspect. When we see someone, the presumption is under law they have capacity until it's proved otherwise. And, again, you've got to do away with any biases you, you might have. Yeah, that makes things very complicated because you might have relatives that are there with them, for example, to guide them and help them, and that becomes a capacity issue as well. Well, it becomes very awkward. So my practice, and I I think this is a good practice to have with practitioners, is that when you're speaking to someone about making a will, you're taking those instructions, it's very important that you see that person on their own. Now, if they're particularly um, elderly, it's not uncommon for them to be accompanied by a particular support person. Usually it's an adult child, and that's fine. We do not want to discourage that. But when it comes to taking the instructions, it's so important that you see them on their own because you don't want their instructions potentially being compromised or contaminated, whether intentionally or unintentionally, by other people's opinions. You really want to hear directly from them as unaffected as possible, what do they want? Because as as it's in the name, it's their will. It's what they want. It's not what other people want. It's what they want. Mm-hmm. And I guess most people will start thinking about the final changes to their wills as they get older. And, of course, capacity can get or decline as you get older. And what about even people with, like, English language skills that's a capacity issue as well. Uh, well, it's it's not necessarily a capacity issue because they may have perfect capacity. That's more a language issue. And so um, if I pretty much just speak English. So if I had someone sitting across from me who isn't fluent in English and maybe they speak Mandarin or French or whatever it is, um, if I'm going to take instructions from them, then naturally I'm going to need an interpreter. Um, to interpret between the two of us. Where it becomes an awkward issue is where that proposed interpreter is a beneficiary under the will, might be an adult child, where the adult child's fluent in both their parents' tongue as well as English. And my practice is always where possible to avoid that situation and get an independent and probably a professional interpreter to uh, to act in that role. Mm. Yep. Okay. And I just want to stretch it a little bit. And um, if you have an adult relative that wants to be in the room and I go, look, their capacity is limited. I've got this thing from a doctor. I need to be there to do it. Well, I, I would still insist on them leaving the room. I mean, the initial, you know, greeting, how are you? My name's this, you know, yeah. fine to have other people in the room. But when it comes to the nitty gritty of actually taking the instructions, I would certainly just not do it because it's not worth the will potentially getting contested and also me as the lawyer who's taking the instructions potentially getting sued down the track because yeah. I didn't, you know, do it by the by the book. Yeah. So it is all, it's sometimes awkward, but, you know, you just need to explain this to people that particularly if they're going to be a beneficiary of the will, yeah. if you're going to be spending the money to have this will done professionally, we want to protect it as much as possible. And so just having someone leave the room or... The other awkward aspect is where you sit down with someone and it becomes clear that there there probably is some sort of cognitive impairment there, in which case we usually send them away to a doctor just to get a report. Again, not because the doctor 
doctor's report is determinative one way or the other, but it's just evidence that may be relevant down the track if it gets contested. And having to tell someone, well, listen, I've got some concerns around your capacity. I'd like you to go see a doctor. That is an awkward conversation to have. But if you can couch it in terms of what I often say is like insurance, you know, this is just insurance so that if the will gets contested down the track, there's ammunition there to defend it. And hopefully people will take the personal offence out of it and just see it in those uh, those terms. Yeah, and it takes us back to an earlier episode about will kits. If you're at home doing a will kit and the relatives that are going to be beneficiaries are there with you when you do it, not so good. And and sometimes it's actually those relatives who are filling out the will kit for the parent. And, I mean, that also raises all sorts of issues because you don't have in the case of where you see a solicitor, you've got a third-party professional person who's making notes and recording, this is what the person said, this is what the person wanted. But if you've got a relative beneficiary who's filling out the form with the person making the will, it all becomes very cloudy. And I think in those circumstances, I think it's fair to say they're suspicious circumstances and they will almost certainly cast doubt over whether that will is in fact valid. Great. Thanks for that. Another great episode, Max. And would you mind just wrapping it up for us? Sure. So I think the take-home message here is that capacity is something that's ultimately determined by a court, not by a relative, not by the lawyer, and not even by the doctor. But it is something that needs to be considered. And so where there may be some um, realistic and reasonable doubts as to someone's capacity to make a will, Getting a doctor's report is essential. Making sure the lawyer takes lots of notes and asks open-ended questions uh, may act as good insurance down the track if that will gets contested. Uh, But at the end of the day, people are presumed to have capacity unless proved otherwise. And just because someone might have dementia doesn't mean that they can't make a will necessarily. Thanks for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe and if you require any further information, please go to our website www.degroots.com.au and book a consultation. The contents of this podcast do not constitute legal advice and are of a general nature only. Listeners should make their own inquiries about their specific circumstances and seek legal advice.